welcome to Grand Union. Uh, thanks for joining us to the first ever live recording of Suite 212. Um, this is going to uh, go online as part of our Suite 212 Extra Strand, which you can find via SoundCloud. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and comrade Hugh Lemmy to discuss different approaches to LGBT plus activism, art, and queer consciousness raising from the 1960s to the present. So, just to introduce Hugh, Hugh is a writer and artist, and he's the author of Chubbs, The Demonization of My Working Ass, <laughs> published by Montez Press in 2014. Uh, the follow-up, Red Tory, My Corbyn Chemsex Hell, is due for the same publisher next year, and I can't wait to read that. Um, he's written for The Guardian, London Review of Books, The White Review and Elsewhere, and uh, he's also issued a volume of political poems in 2017 called Confirmed Pig Fucker. <laughs> Which again, I highly recommend. Um, before we start, I'd like to remind you all of the words of Oscar Wilde, um, who you know I think looms behind a lot of these sorts of conversations. Um, Oscar Wilde once said that only dull people are brilliant at breakfast. Um, so really, this is just to lower your expectations. <laughs> um, but like Hugh and I have no problem with talking to each other. Uh, we recently did a podcast with Real Politic. Uh, kind of diagnosing some of the problems with British sort of liberal uh, broadsheet media that clocked in at three and a half hours. So um, we'll try and keep it a bit shorter today. I mean, that's a subject we could have spoken about all day. And I think this probably is as well, but we're going to try and keep it to an hour and a half. So, um, yeah, I mean, I thought I would start the conversation. Um, you know, the, the Stonewall riots of um, June 1969 in New York are often seen as the kind of start of the modern kind of LGBTQI movement. Um, but I think it's worth just talking about a couple of kind of close historical precedents for it. Um, you know, our conversation is going to largely cross the UK and the US and take in one or two other places and cultures as well. Um, I think it's worth mentioning in the UK, of course, there was partial decriminalization of homosexuality um, amongst men in 1967, 10 years after the um, Wolfenden Report in 1957, which criticised the existing um, law, the um, Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, that um, made gross indecency, public or private, between two adult males um, a crime. Um, and that this law uh, often led to kind of like blackmail and police corruption. Uh, in the US, there had been riots in San Francisco in 1966 at the uh, Compton's Cafeteria, where um, like transgender sex workers in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco rioted after kind of constant police harassment at this all-night cafeteria, where people often kind of spent their free time. Um, the activists then worked with um, Harry Benjamin, who had formerly been associated with Magnus Hirschfeld, the pioneering uh, sexologist in early 20th century Germany. Uh, Benjamin had moved to the US in 1913 and he was still working. He wrote The Transsexual Phenomenon in 1967, which has become um, a kind of baseline for the work of um, gender identity clinics and kind of medical sex reassignment processes. Um, so the activists there worked with Benjamin and they worked with the Erickson Educational Foundation um, established by a wealthy trans man called Reed Erickson and they funded a new model of medical provision there in the 60s and 70s, and also worked with active ministers at the Glide Memorial Methodist Church um, 
So, you know, I think, Hugh, I'd like to kind of bring you in here um, just because I think in any sort of discussion like this, it's important to think about precedence to Stonewall and the way the Stonewall riots have been kind of remembered and positioned as this uh, kind of pivotal moment in queer history. Yeah, <clears throat> and quite often the Stonewall riots are sort of seen as a, um, a birth moment, but I think that's probably the wrong way to look at it. I think it's more... Um, uh, they, they, they were a transition moment between one form of activism, one form of um, a conception of a gay identity and a new form of being gay in public. Um, and really I think that came about through uh, as a perfect storm of um, a certain amount of activism and activist groups that had been established beforehand which had really struggled to make much, many inroads into, um, into sort of state and public and social oppression. Uh, also um, a, a perfect sort of moment in terms of press coverage and it also happening when, at a time when the gay community in, uh, around Christopher Street in that area in New York had formed essentially um, a critical mass of people living there, what was referred to as the gay ghetto, which really en enabled there to be a sustained, um, almost a week of, of rioting and, and protests. Um, and um, people just being fed up and realizing that they had a critical mass that could take on um, police violence and, um, and also corruption between the police, the mafia, and the people who own the gay bars. But also it came about um, in a sort of social context, a wider political context of, um, of 1968 and the riots in France beforehand, and then also the war in Vietnam, um, public disaffection with that. And so it's no surprise that the sort of language and the organizing methods that they took at the time was initially the Gay Liberation Front, taking a direct sort of um, reference to uh, anti-colonial struggles at the time. Um, and I think if we go back, we can see that the, a lot of the patterns that, that emerged in terms of gay organising um, after 19, uh, 1969 were really strongly influenced by a lot of the organising on the left that came beforehand. Um, for example, a lot of the people who were involved in the first um, organising of gay people in New York had previously been involved in the civil rights movement in the American South as um, in the closet mainly, but as sort of white um, activists who had travelled down to organise and there they encountered black radicals who um, had a lot more de developed sort of social and critique of, sort of racial structures and said, you know, we don't need your help here, you go back and organise your own communities, meaning white communities, but a lot of them took from that message, we'll go back and organise our own communities, the gay community. So I think that, that there's a lot there. Um, but also that the, the struggle for sort of social rights and this, this dual split that I think we'll talk about later between um, a sort of liberal, more liberal reformism and then a more radical left orientated idea of some sort of um, liberation goes right back um, to the very first days of, um, of sort of political organising. So you mentioned, for example, Magnus Hirschfeld there, and people kind of think that the homophile movements sprang out of nowhere in America in the 1950s out of internal American issues, but actually there are direct links. There's a, um, there was a man called Henry Gerber, who's a, I don't know if I pronounce that right, Gerber perhaps? I think it's Gerber. Gerber, yeah. A, uh, a German citizen who had um, been around the sort of milieu of, the, um, of, of Hirschfeld at the time in Germany and then emigrated to the US in 1913, served in the US military there and in 1924 formed the Society for Human Rights. And that's really the start of the homophile movement proper in, in the US. <clears throat> I've just got a, a little quote here from his, um, his sort of introduction to their first, not really a manifesto, but their statement, which was they're formed to promote and protect the interests of people who, by reasons of mental and physical abnormalities, 
are abused and hindered in a legal pursuit of happiness which is guaranteed them by the Declaration of Independence and to combat the public prejudices against them by the dissemination of factors according to modern science among intellectuals of mature age. The society stands only for law and order. It is in harmony with any and all general laws insofar as they protect the rights of others and does in no manner recommend any acts in violation of present laws nor advocate any manner inimicable to the public welfare. <coughs> so you see there there's really a sort of pushing this idea of the, the sort of um, gay man as a uh, unfortunate who needs sort of the protection of the law and um, and is in no way a threat in his sort of sexual identity. Yeah, so I mean that's an interesting precursor to what starts happening in the, the 70s after, you know, these kind of these moments of eruption that we've been talking about. Um, <coughs> you know, the first gay pride marches take place in LA, San Francisco, New York and Chicago on the 28th of June 1970, so on the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Um, you know, there were two gay activist organisations formed in New York, three newspapers and you know, gay rights organisations around the world by the mid-1970s. We've already mentioned France and the aftermath of the, um, the events of May 68. We, we did a podcast on Sweet 2 and 2 Extra with the um, writer and curator Paul Clinton on this, which I would recommend you all uh, go to because it's very interesting. Um, one of the things Paul mentioned is the Front for Revolutionary Homosexual Action and their manifesto, um, published in I think 1972, began with proletarians of all nations, caress yourselves. Founded in 1970, the Homosexual Front of Revolutionary Action brings together more than 4,000 militants in France who have decided to show themselves everywhere and by all means, class struggle goes through the body. Having no reason for being other than desire, homosexuality is the living negation of false values, sacrosanct institutions and all roles. It's the absolute negation of the world as it is. Lesbians and faggots, let's raise the walls, let's leave the dumps and the ghettos. So you get an interesting taste of some of the sort of you know, radicalism of kind of early to mid 70s activism. Of course, you get the second wave feminist movement in the US, the, in particular the lesbian feminist part of it that springs out of Betty Friedan's comments about the Lavender Menace to second wave feminism. Um, and, you know, you get some interesting kind of artistic groups as well. There was a group called, um, just as I um, corrected your German, you're not going to have to correct my Spanish. Um, mm. So Juan Hidalgo. Uh, formed a group called Design, Z-A-J, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but this was a Spanish fluxus, Zach. Uh, this was a Spanish fluxus group that was sort of intended to disrupt the kind of moral codes of the Franco regime. Um, Hidalgo made works called Sad Baroque and Happy Baroque, where he places like sort of you know, an image of one flaccid penis and one erect one inside an image of two different flowers. Um, so I think there were some interesting things going on at this time, you know, in New York you get like the, um, the Queen's Liberation Front, Lee Brewer, gay drag activist and heterosexual transvestite Buddy Eisenhower um, form that group, Brewer starts publishing the Queen's Journal. Um, so, you know, there is a sense that people are using a mixture of kind of like street activism um, but also kind of cultural activism. Um, and something you've, you've mentioned to me before, which is the, uh, the thinkings that I think the Gay Liberation Front used to hold. Yeah, that was, um, <clears throat> that was definitely a big part of the Gay Liberation Front in the UK, was um, thinkings, which was a sort of uh, breaking up into small consciousness-raising groups where um, groups of between sort of six and ten people from the local branch would, would discuss their own experiences and um, sort of develop some sort of idea of what their shared struggle might be and their shared consciousness, which 
is a big thing at the same time within the uh, second wave feminist movement that actually um, people just didn't really understand what they had in common uh, and that they actually did share um, similar grievances and oppressions that could be counted through some sort of collective organisation. The first step to doing that is to really understand what you're fighting. Uh, and so, they, yeah, they, they formed that through uh, thinkings, which they then quite often uh, developed, uh, if not by either direct action strategies or um, or sort of wider aims at consciousness raising amongst the, uh, the the wider community. For example, in I think it was Camden um, Camden uh, Gay Liberation Front uh, chapter, they decided they'd go up to Heath on a, a midnight on a Saturday with a, with a, a little wallpapering table with a tea in and give that cups of tea to the people who are sort of cruising mm -hmm. up there in an attempt to persuade them because at the time cruising was seen as a very reactionary practice where um, you know you're living in shame and it was a sort of this attempt to bring people out of the closet. There's a great account of that actually in Come Out which is a Gay Liberation Front's magazine in the UK uh, where one guy sort of talks about going up there and how he's going to persuade these sort of guys to come out and not live in shame anymore and a guy comes over from the woods and has a cup of tea with him and then says, well, have you ever been cruising? Do you know what you're missing? And he goes, no, actually I haven't been. And he goes off and then he writes about how he had this like wonderful experience discovering like the power of anonymity and, and how that's unleashed ideas about his own body and stuff like that. But that, that directly came out of the thinkings, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about how kind of this movement at the time was, you know, the gay men were the most visible presence within it, I think, you know, the lesbian feminist movement obviously famously was quite kind of separatist, mm -hmm. um, had its own kind of thinkers and organisational structures and a different kind of set of concerns, I think. Um, something I'd like to talk about now, because it's something I always want to talk about, is the work of the German filmmaker Rosa von Praunheim, um, who kind of emerged around about the same time as Rainer Werner Fassbinder in that kind of like German new wave cinema that kind of happens in the kind of late 60s contemporaries with the sort of crowd rock movement and some interesting developments in German theatre, uh, which is very much informed by, you know, a mixture of, um, you know, kind of interest in this kind of this new left, this sort of civil rights type of leftist discourse that we've been talking about, but also, of course, a reaction against their, their parents who were the Nazis generation. Um, you know, von Praunheim was very interested in Magnus Hirschfeld, we talked about already, um, but I want to focus for a moment on possibly his most controversial film, which came out in the early 70s, which is called It's Not the Homosexual Who Was Perverse, But the Society in Which He Lives. Um, I mean, the film, um, you know, can be located within this kind of like German Marxist cultural tradition. It borrows quite a lot of techniques from Brecht and epic theatre. Um, to kind of push a political message, which is to encourage activists not to kind of seek tolerance, but to develop a kind of a self-awareness and change society at large. So it chimes with what you were just talking about in the US. But um, you know, in the film, you see a character called Daniel move from a small town to Berlin and become involved with the gay scene there. Uh, and their voiceovers that are in dialogue or even kind of contradiction with what you see on the screen. Um, so you see Daniel kind of, you know, first up just try and kind of live in coupledom with a man and film is kind of suggesting that maybe kind of like replicating sort of bourgeois um, familial norms is not the way to go. Um, but you also see kind of scenes of like kind of cruising and a more kind of culture of kind of like sexual interaction rather than attachment. And this is presented as being quite shallow and quite futile. Um, scenes in kind of drag bars that have a sort of sense of alienation to them as well. Um, and this film used to kind of 
um, annoy audiences, and particularly kind of like gay audiences so much, um, screenings would be very contentious. Rosa von Kraunheim eventually uh, made a short film um, called like, Audience Responses to It's Not the Homosexuals Who Perverse, which would be shown with the film after. And even now, uh, this film is still kind of screened mostly with kind of panels discussing it when it's screened at all because it, you know, it still, still requires quite a lot of contextualisation. So I wanted to talk about that, but um, Hugh, I don't know if you had anything to add about a later von Fraunheim film, Army of Lovers, that kind of chronicles the first ten years of this, this movement. Yeah, um, Army of Lovers <coughs> uh, was a, uh, based on a series of interviews he did with people who were involved in the gay rights movement, in, uh, largely in the US. I think, I think there's a few German uh, activists as well uh, from 1969 onwards. Um, and this, uh, he later produced a book from it, in fact, and it's essentially like an oral, oral, oral history, which, um, which is very interesting because it throws up a whole bunch of contradictory um, you know, remembrances and people's sort of people's idea of how things happened uh, is still, you know, less than 10 years after Stonewall is still very fluid and contested. Um, for example, like one, one part of it I was, um, I was reading in a book yesterday actually was about how, um, I, don't know, I think it's Vito Russo claims that um, the Gay Liberation Front existed before Stonewall and also that the Stonewall riots were started by uh, potentially a heterosexual man. Okay who uh, was so angry at the police violence and the no one was fighting back, would sh shouted in the bar, um, why don't you queers fight back? And that was the provocation. That's, I don't, I don't know, he, he claims that there are 300 people there who had, have, have since attested to that being the case. I've, I've, that's the first time I've heard of it. Maybe it's been written out of the history, but I think, yeah, his, um, his idea there of collecting and um, publishing these sort of memories is a large part of sort of, um, uh, reclaiming a history from liberal reinterpretation, I suppose, and um, uh, and an attempt to show that gay people had to sort of recreate their own media. And there's a lot of talk in the film and the book about um, the, the magazines that came after and the importance of gay publishing uh, to uh, to sort of furthering the cause. Yeah, I mean the point you make about history and you know kind of accurate recordings of um, of these kind of moments. You know, there is this. Um, this kind of dynamic that performance artist Penny Arcade talks about that's quite interesting is that, you know, up until the sort of 60s and 70s, you know, these kind of queer histories were kind of handed down quite kind of orally, you know, people would live in kind of like gay districts of town and communities would form and that was how the histories would get um, kind of passed on. Um, for reasons that we're about to explore, kind of from the 1980s onwards, it became more necessary to, you know, write things down. Or whatever, um, you know, so interesting chronicles of the period we've been talking about that I forgot to mention earlier. Um, I really recommend everyone like Leslie Feinberg's novel Stonebridge Blues from the early 90s, which kind of perfectly captures this kind of this pre Stonewall atmosphere of this kind of like kind of queer underground where kind of you know what we would later sort of delineate as like gay and lesbian and bi and trans and queer people uh, were all kind of intermixing and you know didn't really have those sorts of labels yet. Um, and also I'd recommend Susan Stryker and Victor Silverman's documentary Screaming Queens from 2008, which covers the Compton's riots. So both of those are, are worth tracking down if you can find them. Um, you know, there's a, a kind of gay culture that we've just talked about, particularly gay culture, um, that, you know, sort of 
really looked at this sort of possibility of like sexual liberation of kind of difference from sort of conventional like heteronormative mm -hmm. social structures. Um, you know, in the episode I did with uh, Paul Clinton, I referenced uh, Mario Miele's book *Elements of a Homosexual Critique* or *Towards a Gay Communism*, which was written in the Italian years of Len and in the shadow of the murder of the filmmaker Pier Pasolini in uh, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini in 1975. Um, and you know, this was a sort of critique of what Miele called educastration that aimed to kind of fight an education system that taught children to be heterosexual and cisgender and closed down a kind of range of gender and sexual possibilities for them. Um, and you know, also embraced this idea of everyone being what he called transsexual as a counterpoint to French kind of homo masculinity. Um, you know, Miele felt people could sort of move beyond kind of like gender and sexual norms. That's more what his term transsexuality kind of um, and you know there were some interesting uh, tensions kind of emerging at this time like in France the sort of lesbian group split from the French homosexual revolutionary front over issues of consent um, you know trans people were quite marginal within these movements if they were included at all obviously were included from a lot uh, excluded from a lot of second wave feminist organising altogether increasingly so as the 70s went on um, but of course um, you know, there is a substantial game changer in the early 80s, and obviously that's the emergence of AIDS, which was, of course, initially uh, termed GRID, or gay-related immune disorder, by the Western media um, when it kind of first became, um, you know, sort of first entered the public consciousness around about sort of 82, 83. Um, so, you know, the presence of this um, this epidemic, I think, meant a substantive shift in tactics for a lot of activists, uh, you know, away from this kind of overt sexuality of a lot of 70s kind of French and Italian um, and even kind of UK and US activism. Um, you know, notably, a lot of kind of conservative politicians and pundits, you know, really celebrated the arrival of AIDS. You know, various kind of American evangelicals were very, very happy to see this disease that largely seemed to be killing like gay men and sex workers. The notorious head of the Greater Manchester Police over here, James Anderton, said that sex workers and people with AIDS were living in a human cesspool of their own making. Uh, that was in 1986. And uh, he was, you know, very notorious in Manchester. A lot of the Manchester bands made songs about him. Uh, he's referenced in Hit the North by The Fall. Um, the Happy Mondays had a song called God's Cop. Um, and uh, one of the best bands from this time and place, The Passage, had several songs that uh, reference him, including one called Anderton's Hall. So he was, you know, he was widely hated in Manchester and there were efforts to remove him from his post. Uh, Graham Stringer, the head of the Manchester City Council, was kind of publicly saying, look, this man should not still be in this job. Um, but the Thatcher government held meetings to kind of keep him in post and Thatcher privately supported him. Um, so, you know, this kind of you know homophobic reaction to the AIDS crisis was, was you know, very institutionalised and, of course, Lots of artists and activists, um, you know, felt quite strongly that um, kind of reactions were, you know, at best kind of, um, you know, being slow to respond to to the AIDS epidemic, you know, in the hope that it would take out people that they wanted taken out. Um, so at this point, you know, Hugh, I'll bring you back in, and you know, we can talk about responses of groups like Act Up and Grand Fury to um, to the crisis. 
Yeah, <clears throat> just on that point in terms of yeah, this sort of conservative response and reactionary response, it wasn't, it's important to stress now because I think it can get lost, is it wasn't a uh, fringe element of, for example, sort of uh, wingnut um, evangelicals, the sort of Fred Phelps, Westboro Baptist Church types you see now. It was really at the heart of the US conservative establishment, the Republican Party especially, and the Democrats, let's be, let's be honest, uh, in terms of, um, for example, William F. Buckley, who was the most sort of establishment, uh, respected con mainstream conservative commentator voice at the time. He was advocating that gay men should um, have... Uh, uh, should have the fact that if they had AIDS, they should they should have their status tattoos on their arse to prevent the spread, for example, and the intravenous drug users, which is quite a forgotten um, demographic in talking about the AIDS crisis, should have it tattooed on their arms so that people know, for example. Um, a guy called William, oh, the name escapes me now, a conservative MP, uh, no, conservative councillor at the time under Thatcher was. Um, uh, advocated uh, concentration camps for gay men in the UK quite seriously and was sort of taken seriously at the time it was in the papers. Uh, I think he was at Staffordshire Council and there is still the council chamber isn't it still named after him. There was a Tory MP called Nicholas Winston as well who suggested that like you know we have anti-smoking days to warn people about the dangers of smoking so we should have anti-gay days to warn people about the dangers of the gays. Yeah and, um, and also yeah, this, this ties it this ties into again to this sort of um, you could go back into sort of left baiting aspects in the relationship between the left and and um, gay activism and homophile activism going back to the 1950s or actually to the 1930s, but um, uh, but it, in in London it was a, a key tool in sort of berating the what was at the time termed the loony left, um, who were organising sort of consciousness raising things for gay gay people and lesbians at the time and um, support groups and stuff like that. That was seen as this sign of just how crazy the loony left was that they were supporting gay rights. Now, obviously, it's an item of faith for the Conservative Party, but you know, at the time, there were very, very few MPs who were supporting that. Um, probably Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott were some of the few notable ones who were at the time. Which is, well, and Ken Livingston, yeah, yeah, which has really been written out of history now that um, the Conservative Party has claimed gay marriage as, as their victim. Well, and the right wing of the Labour Party claiming yeah. But anyway, yeah, so to go back to um, the, the, the response amongst um, gays and lesbians to the uh, AIDS crisis in the US, I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, what it would really have been like to experience that at the time because th th there was a sort of social uh, challenge, uh, there was a political organising challenge, there was a sort of huge um, psychic trauma happening in terms of what does this mean about the ideas of liberation through sexuality and through sexual activity and the idea of comradeship, for example, through through sexual activity and um, removing these sort of heteronormative models for how you could organise society when this was happening. And the idea of it being a punishment wasn't uh, restricted just to just to uh, the right. There was discussions about that in the problems with that happening amongst gay community at the time, partly because people had so little idea of what was happening. Um, for example, uh, before they knew that it was a virus, there was this idea that what it, it was a form of um, uh, sort of immune shock from taking so many antibiotics, from dealing with other sexually transmitted diseases and infections at the time. So people thought that actually, if you could rebuild your immune system um, and uh, not stop taking antibiotics, then you could actually your body would recover. There were all sorts of ideas at the time for what possibly it could have been. Obviously, at first they thought it was a cancer because it. Those early manifestations were 
in uh, cancerous tumours. Um, and then on top of that, just the sheer human effect of um, hundreds of people in a very small community uh, getting ill very, very quickly and dying. Um, entire social groups sort of um, disappearing, entire friendship groups. Um, the, this sort of uh, oral history and, of, and this oral culture that was a transmission of gay culture at the time from being completely shattered. Um, and then obviously, you know, triggering a lot of feelings that gay people dealt with at the time still do deal with to do with shame about their own body, um, about their own sexual activities, for, for example. So, yeah, it was this huge, huge crisis and it took um, a short while for any sort of political response to emerge. Um, but it, uh, yeah, for example, one of the first form was the gay men's health crisis, which started off as just um, uh, a crisis counselling service over the phone and then grew and developed into advice, legal advice, um, support, groups. Um, that still exists today. That was formed by, uh, amongst others, Larry Kramer, the playwright, and Edmund White, the novelist, who I think we'll probably talk about <coughs> a bit later in terms of their responses. But they, um, uh, the initial response was very much uh, dealing with a crisis in terms of people's mental health and people's direct needs as, as people who'd usually disowned by their families. Um, something that's not really discussed as much as it should be as the role of women and uh, especially lesbians in coming to the aid of gay men at the time. And there was a lot of support groups organised where um, women would take on these nursing and care roles. Um, and a lot of that's been forgotten, partly um, obviously through sort of a, a devaluation of that sort of labour um, and a sort of patriarchal thing, and partly because uh, a lot of people who, did the, who were cared for obviously died <coughs> and their thanks and appreciation wasn't really passed on and their friends died. And, Etc. Etc. Um, so that was the initial start, and then out of gay men's health crisis, there emerged um, uh, other responses. Uh, Larry Kramer went on to set up, uh, amongst others, ACT UP, which took a much more direct, uh, angry approach of confrontation with the state, and they saw the state's responses a direct exacerbation of the crisis. That, that what they were doing was not just neglect, but was sort of an active form of um, uh, political war upon gay people, which um, is uh, an analysis that has stood the test of time. Um, it, it was, I think, seven years from the start of the crisis to when the President Reagan, uh, Reagan at the time even uttered the word AIDS or HIV. It was just completely ignored and it was yeah, partly seen as punishment. And so there was this big struggle within uh, ACT UP to bring it into the mainstream and make it a national crisis that people couldn't ignore. Um, and also to um, to deal with the problem at the time, which was um, so many people were dying so quickly, but the uh, bringing new drugs onto the market, they had to go through the, well, I can't quite remember the name of the organization, the, the testing organization, the equivalent of the American equivalent of NICE, it was taking so long to get them on into the market and people were saying we need the drugs now so a lot of act activism was really uh, oriented towards that yeah um i mean the, the cultural responses uh to the crisis are very kind of interesting and of course they're very varied and there's too many to kind of provide a kind of really detailed list here um so i, I think you know one thing to do is to bring back uh, Rosa von crownheim um, Rob crownheim's films um really substantively changed their character uh, in the kind of mid-80s. Um, 
uh, he makes a film that I'm very fond of called City of Lost Souls in 1982, which, um, you know, really, when you watch it now, it feels like the kind of dying of the light of this kind of like pre-AIDS kind of queer culture. It's, um, it has much more of a kind of emphasis on like kind of liberated gender and sexuality and, um, you know, more than one of the people in the film, most of whom are broadly declaring themselves like died, um, died of like AIDS-related illnesses. Um, and his films kind of substantially change character in the mid-80s as he sort of starts working on the, the crisis. Um, so there's two films that he makes in 1990, uh, one called Silence Equals Death, which of course draws on the famous uh, act-up slogan. Um, and he makes that in New York and he interviews people like Allen Ginsberg, David Wolnarich, uh, and Keith Haring, who actually died before the, the film was released, and you know, really focuses on the arts commu art community's efforts to alert the public through performance and art and music and theatre, which then leads to the kind of reactions from like Jesse Helms about obscenity, famous kind of culture wars over Robert Mapplethorpe's photography. Um, and then there's a follow-up film called Positive, which focuses on uh, activist organisations like, like we've mentioned, kind of Queer Nation, as well as ACT UP, and the Gay Men's Health Crisis has interviews of people like Diamanda Gallas. Um, so von Kraunheim was really responding to this need to chronicle this history you know, in a form that would last. You know, this, this chain that we talked about was obviously very much broken by the AIDS crisis, and it was obvious there was going to be this generational gap in like queer history and record keeping that needed to, to be filled. Um, I want to bring the conversation back over to the United Kingdom now. Um, obviously, we've touched on this already, but you know, a really just a bigger pivotal moment in kind of British kind of queer consciousness raising and activism and culture. Uh, it's clause 28 and then later section 28. So this was the um, section of the local government uh, act or local government bill in 1986 that the Thatcher government, you know, more than halfway into its tenure at this point, um, introduced into parliament and introduced a clause to the local government bill, uh, which is a bill largely dealing with cuts to public services. So, you know, little has changed in that respect. Um, but, you know, introduced a kind of a clause after a kind of media panic about a book called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, which was apparently being distributed to uh, children in Harringay in London, although actually had probably just had one copy of it put in the wrong bit of the library. Um, but clause 28, you know, sort of aimed to uh, make it illegal for councils to promote homosexuality either through schools or public bodies, so libraries in particular. Um, you know, it was an extraordinarily spiteful piece of legislation. Um, and of course happened at the time of the kind of panic around the AIDS crisis as well. Uh, so it was part of this kind of big uh, homophobic and kind of traditionalist reaction. Um, you know, as we talked about, the, the mainstream of the Labour Party were quite reluctant to fight the clause, even though kind of um, gay activists were saying to them, look, it's part of an assault on public spending and local councils, you really should be fighting on that basis. Um, one of the most prominent shadow ministers, Jack Cunningham, decided that, you know, publicly said that the Labour Party wouldn't oppose it. Um, and you've got an interesting legacy in the background, uh, which of course was made much better known by the film Pride a few years ago, which is the lesbians and gays support the minors movement in 1984 to 85. Um, you know, Pride, I think, skates over the kind of communist politics of Mark Ashton, who was the founder of the movement, um, 
kind of died of an age-related illness before the end of the 80s. Um, although it does keep in something of the socialist politics of the LGSM movement. Um, and, um, you know, they did a lot of kind of cultural outreach work, you know, as well as kind of direct action. Um, you know, they worked through kind of pop music and gay club scenes in London and Manchester, did benefit gigs at um, the Hacienda, as well as at Heaven. Um, and I think the legacy of that movement's important. You can still see it now with the establishment of like lesbians and gays support the migrants, you know, in response to particular kind of widespread Islamophobia, but also kind of rising anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and that sort of understanding of building alliances across kind of um, groups that maybe historically haven't worked together, I think is really interesting. Um, you know, the, the demo against Clause 28 itself uh, in Manchester in February 1988 was one of the largest demonstrations in kind of UK kind of like um, LGBT activism's history. Um, sort of 20,000 people there, huge concert in um, Manchester, I think, at the Free Trade Hall. Um, very, very well attended. Um, and again, you know, lots of kind of cultural figures. I think Ian McKellen came out in response to, yeah, did, yeah. to, the, to the clause, um, and he spoke there, I think. Um, and there was lots of interesting cultural work that followed this, like Samuel Gupta's photo series called Pretended Family Relationships, made in 1988-29 of like gay couples, which responded to the phrasing in the, um, in what then, by then become Section 28, passed through the poems. Uh, you know, Derek Jarman's work um, kind of references the demos against Section 28. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, famously kind of lesbian abseilers kind of disrupted BBC News to protest against the clause. Uh, so there were lots of, you know, tactics that were maybe kind of borrowed from, you know, sort of 60s and 70s kind of radical groups. Um, but also, you know, more kind of conventional kind of arts activism. I think, you know, Clause 28 is a really interesting moment in like British LGBT history um, but I think it did also have a chilling effect after that. Yeah there's actually a great, um, <clears throat> a great film by uh, Ed Wingall which um, covers a lot of the uh, issues, a lot of the stuff to do with protests around Clause 28 and the organising so well worth a watch. And that's called uh, We Have Rather Been Invaded which yeah. obviously references the newsreader. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean uh, yeah I mean it came about at a time where there was a lot more sort of there was starting to be a lot more public awareness and discussions around homosexuality. I mean, um, I'm thinking of, um, for example, Hanif Qureshi's film *My Beautiful Laundrette*, which came out in 1985, uh, which presented like a very sort of sympathetic and warm depiction of, uh, of, a, of a gay relationship. And um, uh, I, I think there was a strong shift after that. Uh, I mean, the AIDS crisis was um, gave a lot of weight behind. Uh, behind the bigotry behind Section 28 that enabled it to be put into practice. But yeah, the, the aim was really um, to remove the support networks that were being established for young LGBT people uh, and to really scupper the idea of any sort of education uh, within schools that could you know, help, help people, <coughs> usually in the most difficult and isolating moments you know, of, their, of their life and coming out. Um, and it really did have a chilling effect. It lasted until 2003, you know, because I, uh, I came out in school and Section 28 was uh, happening and uh, it was an extremely unpleasant experience anyway. Uh, I lived in a sort of very rural area. It was, I was the only gay, openly gay person, 800 students. And I remember going to 
teacher specifically and asking for some help and support and she said to me very explicitly I just can't you know that she, she said that she felt uh, completely hindered in, in being able to even offer any sort of um, any sort of support because I think the wording of the act was very um, loose in order to specifically allow people a space to uh, homophobic teachers to the space to be able to um, to refuse support even when it was and so it was to do <coughs> yeah promoting the idea of promoting homosexuality as a, a valid alternative so it was, it was very very difficult for teachers in the time and they 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 were under threat I think and yeah I mean that looseness of phrasing of course is an old tactic mm. the um you know, mentioned the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 uh, and the, the making of gross indecency a crime. Uh, of course, that was the thing that did for Oscar Wilde because it was the first, you know, all British laws governing sexuality before then had referred specifically to sodomy, which, of course, is a very hard thing to prove. Um, there's a famous case of two Victorian cross-dressers, Bubbles and Park, who were arrested in 1870, and the establishment kind of wants to do them for something, but they don't really have a law under which to prosecute them, yeah. except the sodomy law, so they actually subject Bolton and Park to this medical examination, which obviously proves inconclusive, um, and actually in court, the Metropolitan Police are kind of slapped down by the um, the judge for kind of going far beyond their jurisdiction in doing this, um, but I think the Bolton and Park case is one of the things in the background when that law is, um, is passed, and so yeah, that vagueness in Section 28, it has, it has a kind of a, a Reactionary heritage. Yeah, um, I think I think it is interesting to see uh, see that as a direct result of the AIDS crisis and the government response to the AIDS crisis and really <coughs> their neglect uh, being the sort of second lacuna in uh, the or, or, or hiatus in gay activism. You know, after the first, obviously being um, the Nazis who closed down uh, a lot of gay activism in um, in Germany and then. Um, McCarthyism, which was a, a real suppressant of gay activism in the US, and in fact the Matican Society, as we mentioned earlier, really emerged out of um, uh, the red the red scare because uh, so many so many men were uh, so the lavender scare, which was a uh, coterminous of the red scare, which was about homosexuals being necessarily linked to espionage and being uh, seditious, and they were therefore <coughs> sacked in huge numbers, thousands and thousands of men were sacked from the State Department. And th those professional men were actually the drivers behind the homophile movement. And then later, um, the, the Matican Society actually had its own Red Scare, and a lot of the organisers who were communists were then kicked out. So a slight digression. Were then kicked out, and it became a much more conservative organisation. But I think, yeah, the, the, the idea that AIDS activism, or sorry, that gay activism uh, is punctuated by these um, uh, this sort of waves of repression that come and go, I think is very, really important in terms of thinking about where we ourselves go in the future in the 21st century in terms of this is not a steady, slow <coughs> un unwinding of human progress. That we're, it's, a, it's a constant battle between reactionary forces and liberatory forces. Yeah, I mean, that speaks very much to kind of liberal and radical kind of approaches to history. You know, I did a history degree and we're often being taught about the contrast to this weak um, approach to history that, yeah, gradually unfolding freedoms uh, versus this kind of like radical again, but we'll come back to that in a bit. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> we're both looking forward to that. Um, I want to move the discussion on now to, I guess, the kind of the 90s and first decade or so of this, this century. 
um, you know, there's kind of a point, I think, in the early 90s where, you know, the AIDS epidemic, it doesn't fade into the background as such, but, you know, there's a sense that there's like a new generation of people coming through who are dying in such large numbers who are better informed about the yeah. disease. And, and the introduction of combination therapy as well and, and ACT. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, this, this changes things again. Um, and, you know, this is the point at which I, you know, I'm a few years older than Hughes, so I kind came to an understanding of kind of queer history and culture in the kind of mid to late 90s, I would say. Um, I mean, I didn't really know everything that was going on at that point, obviously, because of, partly because of Section 28. My schooling coincided almost exactly with that law being enforced. So it came in 1988, I was six, I think I'd been at primary school for a year, um, 82, um, but it was repealed in the summer 2003, like just after I completed my undergraduate degree. So, um, it, it coincided very much with, with my, my own education. Um, some of the sort of types of arts activism that were going on in different places, I just want to give a few uh, interesting examples. You know, I mean, the, the AIDS epidemic, you know, as we talked about, meant a kind of reprioritizing of, of gay male voices because they were people kind of most prominently affected. Um, but, you know, what happens in the 90s, I think, is the kind of re-emergence of different um, different groups of people. You know, there's some interesting groups like the Fierce Pussy Group, um, who are around from sort of 1991 to 95, who bring this like lesbian presence to kind of queer resistance that was sparked by the AIDS epidemic. You know, they become really drawn this kind of this zine aesthetic that was becoming more and more popular within kind of various countercultures, and particularly this kind of like the queer underground. There's a great Fierce Pussy poster that says, I am a lesby butch pervert girlfriend, bull dagger sister, dyke and proud. Um, so there's groups like that. Um, in Canada, there's, um, I really like uh, Xanthra Philippa Mackay and Merha Soleil Ross's work, a uh, beautiful 20 minute film called Gender Troublemakers, where they talk about opting out of this kind of transphobic society and finding love with each other as two trans women. Um, you know, this continues on this long tradition of like queer underground film that takes in people like Von Praunheim, who we've talked about a lot, but you know, goes all the way back to the 60s of people like Kenneth Anger and Ron Rice and Jack Smith um, in North America. Uh, and they published a zine as well, uh, Mackay and Ross, uh, published a great zine called Gender Trash from Hell, which you can find online. I really recommend looking at that. Um, you know, in Spain, you've got the post-Franco Spanish lesbian group, LSD, um, who named, kind of combines multiple puns that you need a better grasp of Spanish than mine to to really get, um, but they published a zine called Non Grata in the mid-90s, um, and then you get people emerging like kind of a bit later, like Zanel Maholi's photographs of queer and lesbian and transmasculine people of colour in South Africa, obviously after the end of apartheid, um, you know, and photography I think really comes into its own in the 90s as a, as a means of kind of like queer and artistic consciousness raising, you know, visibility becomes an issue in itself, I think, um, in a different um, so those were the sort of things I, I picked out there. I don't know, Hugh, if there's anything you'd like to kind of add to that. Yeah, I think it, one interesting thing that happens around that time is <clears throat> there being a uh, queer reaction to uh, mainstream gay culture having a voice within the wider mainstream culture um, and people reacting against some of the representations, the, the general representations you'd see on TV or uh, in newspapers of, of you know, what was being established as like a mainstream, like recognised uh, 
half acceptable gay culture um, in terms of entertainers, especially. Uh, so yeah, LGBT people, and also part, a large part of that um, amongst um, gay men was uh, and queer queer men was a uh, um, emphasis on class. So in the UK, for example, you get groups like Homo Cult who are extremely um, aggressive, um, fantastic class uh, brought class analysis towards the idea of pink the pink pound and gay capitalism and the appropriation or the subsumption of um, what's the word I'm looking for the sort of situation I suppose. The subsumption of, uh, of uh, yeah, uh, recuperation. Sorry, yeah, of um, of gay culture into the mainstream by capitalism and yeah, the development of that. So yeah, Homo Court was uh, one example of that. Uh, another sort of strong class voice at the time, who incredibly looking back on it, and you, you realise actually maybe Hong Kong so far is someone like um, the Divine David, uh, David Hoyle, who had a uh, love him so much, so much. <laughs> who, who, it incredibly had a uh, Channel 4 Channel series, 4 series yeah, yeah. yeah, primetime Channel 4 series. I don't think it was primetime. I think it was, I think that was like a 10 minute slot in like right, 9 okay. o'clock or something, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my memories of it are seeing it at like 3 in the morning, kind of like oh, drunk on hooch or something. Maybe I was thinking Yeah, they're really, really worth going and looking back. They're so entertaining, just like, a, just a brilliant... And he remains very entertaining. Remains, yeah. In fact, it's... Got got better in terms of um, uh, a, a much more aggressive uh, political analysis, <laughs> uh, which largely revolves around um, killing everybody. <laughs> I, like, I saw him in twenty twelve, and it was just after the birth of like some sort of royal baby or other. I can't remember which one, but he just came on stage, and the first thing he said was he asked the audience if everyone was excited about the the royal baby, and everyone kind of laughed. He just said. The first thing I thought was like, oh good, another mewling parasite for the British taxpayers to subsidise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, that's that's the only response. I think that's from two years ago, and the, the recurring joke throughout the entire se season was uh, was uh, feeding um, members of the Conservative Party face first into a wood chipper. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to disagree with them. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you did. You, you were starting to get this, this like response to the uh, to, to this this idea of the commodification of gay culture and the pink pound happening, uh, sort of yeah, within the outskirts of British gay culture at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, you get some sort of interesting kind of subcultures spring up, like kind of radical fairies group. I don't know if something you wanted to add about them. Yeah, um, radical fairies um, are still around, uh, they're an international group and they're based around a sort of, um, uh, I guess again the response to sort of com the sort of commodification and urbanisation of gay culture and they're very much a sort of, um, they run communes and uh, festivals in in the woods or in, in nature um, that are based around again like, um, sorry, I'm trying to get the terminology right, forms of drag and um, sort of, um, you know, having these sort of like open, like uh, polyamorous sexual relations, and uh, yeah, but it's very much a sort of return to like loving uh, all types of body types and um, uh, a move away from this sort of like muscular techno sort of um, gay culture of the 90s and 2000s um, and towards performance and flamboyance and fun and care, and also towards more sort of mystical practices and rituals and um, creating. Uh, a sense of community that isn't based around club culture and bars and consumption, but around um, yeah, a sort of return to nature. But um, 
And actually, interestingly, was uh, one of the early members was Harry Hay, who was um, really a recurring a recurrent figure throughout all this because he was uh, a member of the Communist Party and a member of the Machtekinds, and I think a member of the Gay Liberation Front. So he's very he trans transcended the entire the entire movement, and yeah. Yeah, uh, one other thing I would like to bring into this section before we move the discussion on is, you know, in the 90s you get for the first time really a kind of emergence of a sort of trans kind of movement uh, that is really powered by kind of like theory and community organising. Uh, you know, prior to the late 1980s, the main form of writing for trans and particularly transsexual people was memoir, which, you know, posited people as, you know, kind of isolated individuals. Um, you know, trying to fit into a kind of mainstream society. Um, you know, I don't think not every transsexual memoir is like that, and the form doesn't necessarily dictate that. But that's the pattern that I think a lot of them took. And so, in the late '80s, you get the uh, kind of artist, and sound engineer, and um, theorist Sandy Stone in the U.S., who um, the most notorious like transphobic feminist book, *The Transsexual Empire*, was actually written as a response to Stone becoming a sound engineer. Um, and Stone responded to this like a decade later uh, with this manifesto called The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto, uh, which kind of called for like trans, transsexual people to see themselves as like embodied texts in a kind of genre, um, and you know, that could disrupt kind of existing genders and sexualities and you know, could launch this whole kind of new line of writing. And you know, this manifesto really did, you know, in the 90s you get like Leslie Feinberg already mentioned, uh, Kate Bornstein, whose works, you know, Bornstein talks about trying to discover a transgendered writing style, and Bornstein's Gender Outlaw in particular combines lots of different genres in one kind of text. Um, later on, you get people like Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, um, kind of collecting lots of kind of different kind of like queer and trans voices and responding to this like multiplicity of like trans and non-binary identities that kind of you know emerge once Stone and others have kind of opened these doors. Um, and you know, by the late 2000s, you've got this quite vibrant like trans and queer and non-binary like performing arts scene. Lots of people have realised that uh, you know, written and spoken language is often quite gendered. It doesn't really make that much space for positions beyond kind of traditional male and female. Um, and performance and you know, film can be quite interesting uh, ways of kind of you know, creating more space there. Um, you know, I was really moved by like the Trans Fabulous Festival that happened in London in the mid to late 2000s. People like Kate Bornstein, uh, Laszlo Perlman, um, Ignacio Rivera, and lots of others would perform at this this annual festival. And there would also be, you know, things like zine making workshops, uh, just picnics for people, um, all sorts of different ways of kind of like forming a community and allowing it to to have a kind of a creative and a kind of cultural and political expression. Um, and you know, all of these people were were quite big influences on me, and I think the current generation of like kind of trans and queer and non-binary people, um, you know, there's some very complex currents that I think have led us to the present moment, which is kind of what I want to talk about now. I mean, Hugh, you've already talked quite interestingly about, you know, this kind of this push and pull of kind of like radicalism and reaction and kind of reformism sitting somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle. Um, I think you know we've we've kind of we've touched on but maybe haven't talked as much as much as we could have done about the you know sort of slow and strange assimilation of certain kind of LGBT in particular kind of identities into 
mainstream culture. I mean, you know, through all the period we've been talking about from the 60s through to the 2000s, you can find particularly kind of like a certain type of like camp gay man who, you know, is quite prominent with like within like British sort of television entertainment. Yeah, a safe, um, a safe neutered. Yeah, gay man, absolutely. Yeah. You know, ranging through people like kind of. I mean, you know, but also sometimes not that safe. I mean, you know, someone like a figure like Kenny Everett, for example, is quite quite complicated and you know not not as easily domesticated as, as maybe like I don't know Graham Norton or somebody. But um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, those. I mean, yeah, those. Those figures are never as uh, as one dimensional as they often will appear. Anyway, um, even so, I, I listened. I listened to a lot of uh, just a minute, and it's amazing. Uh, like the archives, uh, mm. which is British radio show, which is very sort of middle middle class radio for comedy. Uh, like, is there any other kind of radio for comedy? <laughs> yeah, but uh, going back right to the 70s, some of the stuff that Kenneth Williams says is truly appalling. <laughs> like, uh, be, he obviously can get away with it. And, and some of the stuff that they also said in Round the Horn in terms of in using Polarium stuff, like <clears throat> the, jo the jokes that, I mean, prob you probably couldn't say now, in fact, because people would understand them mm -hmm. in those days. They, they could get, they could slip under the radar. So yeah, like, that's the, I, the, the, I find that an, like a fascinating figure, that sort of 1970s, 80s, and even 90s and noughties sort of uh, smutty innuendo uh, of gay culture, which is actually sometimes can be a lot more threatening than it first appears. Um, but yeah, that was that was very much the, uh, the the only sort of real representation of gay men. I think even in me in my teenage years growing up was Stephanie Strauss seeing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed now. For me, growing up, you know, we didn't, you know, as growing up as someone who was starting to understand themselves as some sort of gender variant, you know, I wasn't, you know, the labels transsexual and transvestite were the only ones really available to me in the yeah. 90s, and, you know, I didn't really have any positive role models in the culture. Um, I don't really want to reprise this too much because I talk about this a lot in my book, Trans and Memoir, um, which you should all read in this book, all the bookshops. Um, <laughs> some bad ones um, <laughs> but um, so I don't want to reprise that too much but um, really I want this to lead me on to what Hugh and I in planning the show sort of determined to be the rant part of the podcast <laughs> uh, which was my own attempts to work within kind of liberal or I think probably more accurately like centrist uh, mainstream media uh, which you know not only rarely gave voices to kind of like trans people but actually uh, frequently gave air to, you know, this sort of legacy of this sort of, I guess, de-radicalised second wave feminism. Um, you know, there's something interesting about the kind of 70s and 80s, kind of particularly gay and lesbian um, activism that sort of finds its way uh, to a sort of more sort of centrist political project as kind of more radical political projects kind of collapse in the 80s and into the 90s, um, or more radical kind of leftist structures. Um, so, you know, I spent the first five years of this decade writing quite extensively for The Guardian and New Statesman, like, not exclusively, but primarily about, um, first my own kind of transsexual kind of identity and the processes through which that was realised, uh, and then, um, and then trying to sort of broaden the discourse to talk about the kind of political issues facing kind of community more generally, like, you know, social transphobia, institutional transphobia, how all those things work, mm -hmm. uh, you know, issues around like housing, public safety, 
um, access to medical treatment and not just for hormones and surgery, but primarily that, um, you know, how austerity was affecting kind of the trans community. In particular, obviously, a lot of the cuts uh, really, really have affected the kind of LGBT community quite badly, uh, as well as women, you know, lots of cuts to kind of like um, domestic violence and sexual abuse services. Um, you know, as well as the like mental health services, which disproportionately affect the kind of LGBT and the queer communities. Uh, you know, trying to talk about these wider talking points and uh, finding myself again and again and again coming up against like individual editors and gatekeepers who either would just want me to just want me to talk about trans things and nothing else, uh, thus sort of maintaining a kind of media typecasting, um, or you know, frequently commissioning like transphobic pieces and saying that they were trying to keep a balance uh, and not really understanding that they weren't operating within a level playing field. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have balance of like a trans person saying, hey, these are the issues that affect our community and then a transphobe saying, no, you shouldn't exist. Um, I mean, that's dubious balance in and of itself, but obviously when you place it within a wider social context, um, it's very hard to see that as anything other than an extremely reactionary project and um, you know we, we're not going to name any names if you want the names you can just go on Twitter but um, like you know certain uh, kind of media gatekeepers I think who have really really doubled down in the face of people pointing out the problems with uh, with that approach um, and you know this sort of existence of, of these debates over trans existence kind of persisting as a talking point and this obsession with structuring everything as kind of debate. I mean, you know, with this radio show, like, I'm much more interested in talking to people with whom I have, like, a broad kind of consensus um, and exploring uh, points in a kind of a depth and, you know, hopefully kind of making some kind of new uh, intellectual discoveries out of it, both for ourselves and for our audiences. I think that's far more interesting than having two, two people opposed to each other just kind of, like, shouting at each other. I don't think I've ever learned anything from that format. Um, Of our media is. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of you got anything to add to that? Um, um, well, I think, yeah, in terms of yeah, the, where we are now and um, the changes that we're seeing, because like, yeah, I think when we were both growing up, there was um, <clears throat> there was it was a moment where the sort of liberal uh, rights based aspect of uh, LGBT LGBT activism was really at its height, um, and so when I was growing up, a lot of the focus was on. Gay marriage, which you know, um, I, I can see the, the arguments, the beneficial arguments of saying that, that, that all people deserve equal access to uh, provisions of the state, regardless of the arguments, which are also strong about um, fitting into heteronormative culture and the wider issues there. Uh, and other issues such, such as being able to serve in the military, which frankly, fuck off. I'm, I'm with Bill <laughs> Hicks on this. Yeah. Like, there's this famous Bill Hicks bit where he just says, This is my take on gays anyone dumb enough to want to be in the military should be allowed in. Yeah. I don't want to hear any like moral objections about gayness. I don't want to gay like people, I don't, killing people. Dropping gay people around me. Bitches full of women and children. kill some people, yeah. Kill people for money, I'm not listening to you talk about morality. Yeah, yeah so I'm not, not really, yeah, that, that side of things. But that was the dominant sort of arguments at the time. And oh, now, late 90s. Yeah, late 90s, right. and early 2000s. And now um, there's a much more uh, uh, forward, left, radical gay movement which is uh, or LGBT and queer movement, sorry, which is 
fantastic and it's really exciting to, to see it emerging. I think there's two reasons for that, one of which is obviously social economic conditions um, uh, and the fact it's, that it's hitting queer people harder than it's, than it's hitting straight people in general and that obviously class and, um, and the social, social economic structure we live in that <coughs> is a huge structural form, format for our sexuality and our gender and our way we interact with the world. And that's the fundamental split between, for the entire of the sort of history of um, LGBT rights uh, organising is is is, a, is um, in terms of homosexuality is homosexuality some sort of like na natural condition, whether whether a sort of positive condition or an illness, where people do require sympathy and civil rights in an equal sense in society, or is it the pr product of a formation of a sort of subjectivity under capitalism? That requires a political response, a self-analysis of desire, um, a look at uh, you know what I, what identity means and the wider questions that are raised by people finding themselves in this alternative, uh, different subjectivity, and then, so that's that's I think really why we've seen this upsurge. And the second reason is social media. I think social media has been this massive game changer in terms of allowing people to organise and allowing people their own voice. And I think <clears throat> the reaction that you're seeing in terms of, and you speak better than this than me, but the reaction in terms of uh, the rise of very explicit transphobia within the British media from trans-exclusionary radical feminists is exactly that. It's a reaction to the increasing voice of, uh, of trans people in society and the fact that people can, can be represented and that reactionary forces, you know, to see, to see people who regard themselves as radical feminists and second wave feminists Praising and writing for, for for magazines like The Spectator. Sorry, I didn't name names. Oh no, name names. Spectator. Spectator. <laughs> and and thinking like, well, what's it come to that we have to uh, we have you know that, that, that we're on the same side? And it's like, well, that's the question you should be asking yourself. Yeah, like, exactly. what, what do you share share with these uh, traditional monsters, right wing yeah, yeah, yeah. monsters and bigots? Uh, and that, that people can respond. And yeah, I just echo exactly what you said, which is that. The idea, this like, structural problem of the British media, uh, which is this idea of uh, a, a centrist idea that that the truth always lies some part at some point between these two poles. And I know like, you've got one side saying we want to be recognised as humans who can make decisions about our own lives, bodies, and relationships. And on the other side, you've got people who said we don't even want you to acknowledge you exist. There is there is a nuance there. You pick a side, and if you don't pick a side, then you're siding and, and you're publishing people who are who are. Bigots, Maybe we can have weekends. Then you're a bigot. Like <laughs> <laughs> you're a bigot. And I, yeah, I, I, I think that this that that's something we see across British media at the moment. Is that you know in, whether it's to do with austerity or you know anything that, that, that the truth lies somewhere in the middle is surely the most stupid of intellectual positions you can possibly take in this moment. Yeah, um, I mean, I personally kind of wanted to work in mainstream media um, because I could see how much damage it was to doing doing to people. Uh, you know, I'd grown up in like a small town, I didn't have a community, really, when I was younger I didn't really have a community, until the mid-noughties when I lived in Brighton and actually found that that kind of radical kind of queer community actually, you know, didn't particularly like kind of feminine people, didn't really welcome trans women, um, it wasn't really for a certain type of gay man either, um, so I didn't really feel particularly welcome there, but I think another change in the last kind of five to ten years is that those autonomous communities have got better at criticising themselves, they've become less insecure in the face of like imminent critique. You know, I think of a book like Julia Serrano's Excluded from five years ago, which is a quite 
excoriating take on those those kind of communities. But it was kind of, I think, critically, but you know, critically received. But it was understood that actually that criticism was was necessary, and it's, it's the only way to improve these spaces. And actually, you know, as you say, with the advent of the internet, social media, things like crowdfunding, you know, this kind of underground filmmaking and zine tradition we've been talking about, mm -hmm. you know, can and is starting to grow into more radical kind of publishing and organising ventures that can hopefully outflank those traditional structures. Yeah. I think um, one thing that we uh, need to talk about in generally as a community, not, not here specifically, is <coughs> uh, the social media's relationship with the difference between oral and written culture and that within uh, LGBT society, uh, it has always been an oral culture where traditions um, yeah, cultures, jokes, lang literally lang entire languages are passed down orally and also a sense of what it is to be LGBT and your place in the community and how you can interact is a very in has always been traditionally a quite an intergenerational oral culture where you go to a bar and then you learn about it and someone, an, an older person will take you aside and say like, oh, you shouldn't say that or you, you know, maybe you should you know, go and listen to this person or watch this film, etc., etc., which is uh, an exciting... Uh, form of culture and it's kind of being replicated now in social media which has the appearance of an oral culture and has a lot of the same structures in terms of jokes and memes and etc etc but also has an aspect of written culture which is uh, it's recorded and I think that's something that people like we're still struggling to come to terms with which is that like the mistakes that I made as a teenager and young gay man on meeting people and having you know those conversations Thank God, are lost in time because, you know. So I think uh, I think that should be something that we need to approach with more sensitivity and more openness. Is that like people need to be able to make mistakes and learn in public without necessarily being held against them forever. In, in yeah, I completely agree, and I think social media kind of culture, and online culture, you know, is slowly becoming more forgiving. I think when yeah, I came to it, kind of seven or eight years ago, I found it to be a very, um, <coughs> you know, a place that didn't really encourage kind of growth. Place that you know made you kind of terrified of making mistakes, and I think that's more likely to make mistakes. Um, well, I didn't find that a particularly helpful environment to work in a lot of the time, but I think it has got better. Yeah, and it's, uh, it does fill me with optimism for future, seeing uh, the fact that I'm learning. I feel like I'm learning so much from younger queer people uh, who are so much more interesting and educated and advanced at their age. You know, he's, when I was a teenager, sort of 18, I don't know who my my access to queer culture is like still like the Smiths, which is devastatingly depressing. And now you, <coughs> now now there's you know seventeen, eighteen year olds who are meeting people from across the country, mm. even though they live in these like small towns, forming like weird, amazing bands, and their influences are like just these fascinating mixes. And I think that's a really optimistic look for like a, a very fast-paced, challenging queer culture. I think come. people are you know have access to much more history as well. Mm -hmm. and that's also um, maybe this is a good point to open up to questions. Uh, we've been talking for, I think, about an hour and 15 minutes or something, so um, it'd be nice to, to hear some other voices. Um, yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of think about kind of like a question of truth in history when we talk about oral histories, maybe when we think about oral cultures and societies, like what is true is often kind of different that 
what kind of truth is reproduced through kind of a written culture. And so maybe kind of if social media is this kind of like hybrid oral culture, what then is like as queer people is our relationship to truth and is it our responsibility to uphold kind of more idealized versions of, versions of truth or can we like imaginatively offer alternative truths? Sounds like my softball question to start. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, I guess. Uh, I or guess. who is your favorite footballer? <laughs> um, probably Zinedine Zidane. Um, I think the the headbutt in the two thousand six World Cup final. Like, who from a minority community hasn't just dreamed of doing that? And everyone's seen. Um, Mine's Eric Cantona for similar reasons. Yeah. Um, basically, footballers who have violently assaulted racists. Yeah. Um, but yeah, truth. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a big question. I'll have to think about it. But uh, I guess. Um, uh, uh, I guess the oral culture offers more space for. Uh, um, Different subjective interpretations of the same events. Those, those, those that von, in that von Praunheim uh, film and book that we were talking about, it is really very noticeable how things that are now established as as <coughs> historical truths are very contested closer to the time in uh, in oral interviews by various different people, uh, and uh, that seems to be beneficial and something that should be encouraged, or, uh, maybe in terms of like, yeah. The people, at, everyone at Stonewall had a different experience of Stonewall, uh, and <coughs> find uh, discovering the absolute truth about what happened at Stonewall is less interesting than understanding how each different participant experienced it and what it meant to them. Yeah, I mean, something I find interesting with social media, obviously, we've kind of touched on this already, but you know, certainly when I came to something like Twitter um, eight years ago, you know, a lot of what was happening was people kind of asserting the truths of themselves and that kind of building into a kind of a community. Um, you know, you see echoes of a dynamic like that in like the Me Too movement that sort of happened like last year in history. Um, Which is a form of consciousness raising group in the same way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, sort of in particular kind of like gender non-conforming people kind of challenging a social model that says that other people determine like who you are. Um, and, you know, social media in particular assert their own truths of their own subjectivities uh, and to kind of produce a whole different model of like personal truth or you know popularize a model that existed for quite a long time I think that's that's a really interesting aspect um, in terms of like wider kind of community events yeah um, you know I saw somebody say that like journalism is the first draft of history and then social media is the first draft of journalism um, because you know sifting You know, this has been noted to become like a bigger and bigger challenge for journalists, let alone historians, um, and I think it will only become more so as time goes on. Um, but you know, as we've we've kind of seen, you know, that phenomenon of like contested truths about events actually long long predates this this movement. I don't feel that's like a one hundred percent satisfactory <laughs> answer to your question, but. Um, it wasn't a very satisfactory question. 
today is that I have a list of about a million things that I want to uh, read or reread or watch or kind of look back at um, and I really loved how you picked out like these really important cultural workers or people who were activists at a time or recording a moment um, of history and I wondered if you could um, talk a little bit about like right now, if there are any artists or writers or filmmakers that you feel that are really, um, not exemplifying, but through their work are talking about um, the queer movement now or how people are kind of reacting? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I kind of see myself as kind of cultural historian, so my interests do tend to be things that have happened in the kind of, I mean, often the relatively recent past, but the past nonetheless. Um, I mean, and the thing with like sort of trans and non-binary stuff and kind of genderqueer stuff in particular is like it's moving so quickly. Mm. Uh, you know, in the general scheme of kind of published writing, a book from kind of five or ten years ago would be very, very recent. Mm. But like this stuff is moving so quickly yeah. that something like say Testo Junkie by Paul Preciado, yeah. you know, feels I wouldn't say old hat because it's still kind of influencing conversations, but um, you know, that book I think was published in Spanish ten years ago or English five years ago, and it already, you know, feels like kind of dim and distant past. Um, so in terms of what's happening right now, I mean, you know, like Travis Alabanza's performance work is quite interesting. I'd like to become more familiar with it. Mm. Uh, you know, in poetry, like Jay Bernard is doing some quite interesting work looking at like kind of like histories of people of colour and kind of like trans and queer people. Um, I really like Nat Brahar's poetry, which you know brings this quite radical kind of formal and political kind of aesthetic um, into, into into the work, and often brings kind of sound art elements in. Um, there are lots of lots of really interesting things happening, like Isabel Widener, Elle Widener, I think it is actually um, edited a volume called Liberating the Canon um, earlier this year, which has some quite interesting kind of LGBT and queer writing in it. Um, I mean, it really does feel like a kind of a wealth of, um, of material suddenly, and a bit like what we were just saying about kind of history and social media, like pulling together a cultural history out of this is going to be, you know, a sort of a difficult but a very interesting and exciting challenge, I think, for, um, for you know, cultural historians, even kind of 10 years, 20 years into the future, because there, there is so much kind of going on. Who was it you were talking about last night? Um, who makes the, uh, it's just the name escapes me, the YouTube video, but... Oh, that's uh, Natalie Wing, ContraPoints. ContraPoints, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's very interesting, you know, um, kind of responding to a lot of, like, alt-right discourses in this very kind of stylish and funny way. Mm. Um, yeah, she's definitely worth looking up. Yeah, um, I, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm not so great with getting lots of references, I'm afraid. Like, I'm, I'm personally spending a lot more time sort of getting into stuff about, like, queer, queer affect and... Queer poetics. Well, that's just my personal interest at the moment. I've been reading stuff like, uh, yeah, like um, Isabel Widener, um, Eli Williams, Eli Williams, yeah. Jan Ratsumatra. Um, 
Richard Scott, uh, yeah, Travis Alabanza. I didn't see that show, but I've seen some of the stuff on YouTube. Uh, but more generally, I'd say like, um, uh, I think sort of YouTube and podcasts are like emerging as like a really rich ecosystem of discussion and um, like an open space where people can really just uh, talk about their, not just their own experiences, but their, their own interests. And yeah, because I, I spend more time just like listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos. And then also just um, going to like, uh, I mean, I, I don't live in uh, the UK, I live in Barcelona now, and just going to like 4 a.m. Um, weird uh, um, cabaret type drag nights. Like there's a lot of like weird stuff there and like a lot of squat parties, like just like, there's like a real like almost like good culture of like freaking people out sort of thing, you know, which is, I'm really enjoying just because it's a lot of fun and it seems seems like there's people doing some really interesting stuff. Well, I think that's probably also happening in the UK. I've been to a few things like that in the UK. I think uh, Ray Fila, for example, is doing some like interesting um, performance work as well at the moment. Yeah, I mean that performance culture, you know, feels like it's constantly evolving. I mean, the overheads for it are quite low. Like all yeah. this space and the audience, you know, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern have been doing like bar and whatever for like nearly a decade now. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's lots of performance and there's like hit and miss, but you know, that's a good space. David Toyle. Yeah, <laughs> like I absolutely recommend like one one he does these uh, six show seasons every Thursday or Wednesday and does a couple of year and um, it's worth going and like one one year I went to every single one for six weeks because there was uh, there's always a guest support act artist or act and um, some of them I saw Mikey Woodbridge there was absolutely incredible um, like John Joseph uh, yeah a whole bunch of really interesting people you see there and it's just like it's I find that very invigorating a very invigorating show of like just a degree of <coughs> uh, absolute rage that's that's <coughs> missing from people who try to be uh, nuanced and thoughtful and uh, you know sometimes you just read sick of that, you just yeah. think you just think <laughs> so bristling with anger at the system they live under yeah I mean uh, Topside Press in the US are doing some interesting things as well as like a publishing house like set up to publish trans writers for mm -hmm. trans readers um, and we have writers like Casey Clare and Imogen Benyard and uh, Imogen Binyard sorry doing some quite interesting interesting work through them so yeah I mean there are you know there are so many avenues kind of opening up um, it's, it's exciting Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, you know, more and more is recorded now. So, yeah, historically, I think it's made more of an instance in the present because I think, you know, a lot of the formats that we've been talking about, you know, the kind of zines, bits of writing, film, you know, they're all kind of relatively slow to come together and, you know, they require a certain kind of structure that, you know, maybe doesn't allow for more than, like, a couple of minutes of, like, you know, kind of community organisers you know, really furiously impeaching people, um, imploring people to act. Uh, you know, I think of like, you know, this, the three or four min minutes of footage you can find of Sylvia Rivera, uh, the Stonewall Riots veteran and founder of the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries Group in the early 70s. There's um, a bit of footage you can find called You're Better Quiet Than Down, which is 
Sylvia Rivera was kind of you know, really furiously trying to provoke people to act in the face of the sort of discrimination that you know Sylvia Rivera's like trans woman of colour, so you know, she, she worked with class background, faced all sorts of um, you know sort of different oppressions. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of finding people kind of um, you know this sort of this this type of rage that we're talking about. I mean, you know, there is a lot of it on social media. Um, and, you know, I think actually finding a kind of a, a channel and a structure for it, you know, is often kind of helpful just to help people kind of avoid kind of burnout and direct these kind of emotions. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to, to that. Um, I guess I guess I feel like the, the, the lower bar for, uh, in terms of costs and opeds for producing stuff these days is producing, is, is really producing a, a, a space where people can put their unstructured anger uh, in uh, in an exciting way. So I guess I'd say the same for me. I watch a lot of the stuff on YouTube. Like I'm a big fan of the incoherent YouTube rants. I think actually within the incoherence, there, there, there can be a lot of extremely powerful um, and interesting and strangely structured rage that comes out because quite often within those within those YouTube rants, it's something that someone's been like that's been like festering inside somebody for a long time and they've had the arguments 10 times in their heads that actually, yeah, that, that, that sort of rages. Um, I think something that's happening now is the kind of underlying malevolence of sort of liberal civility discourses is really kind of coming to the fore. I mean, I mentioned earlier my frustration and kind of bitterness at my experiences with working within those sorts of structures mm -hmm. and constantly being told to be kind of nice to people and to have civil conversations with people who were just, you know, using their fucking megaphones to endlessly scream that you shouldn't um, I saw a lot of that civility discourse summed up with the phrase, get these shitheads out of my mentions, which I think is <laughs> I think that was Dan Hyde on the media of Oxley Podcast, summing up uh, people at a certain kind of centrist magazine. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of civility discourse does kind of come down to that. Yeah, Twitter's become like a really good good space for the sort of rebirth of the art form of the, the, the read and the insult. Yes. And like, that, that's been really good to see people like really wittily, powerfully, angrily destroy somebody's entire argument with an extremely barbarous, you know, well, well chosen word or two. I, I, I find it like one of the few things that's still really good about Twitter is, yeah, the, 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 the well placed anger. It's so funny. I mean, yeah. this is kind of what keeps me on Twitter is it's so funny. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mentioned at the top of the show, the real politic episode that Hugh and I uh, did is talking about kind of liberal media. Um, you know, the actual, I think, the episode that we were on ended up being less kind of angry and bitter than maybe I was expecting it to. But, like, real politic points have been really, really good at just sort of tearing into this sort of civility discourse. Uh, you know, like a lot of kind of left podcasts, they're really kind of angry at the just level of, like, transphobia in mm -hmm. media, and they've talked about it quite a lot. Um, and they're also very, very funny, and that, that really kind of helps, I think. Yeah, they, they're, they're stuff around... Um Tim Farron, for example, <laughs> I find. Because uh, there's a classic example of somebody who's uh, well-spoken and, and nice, and et cetera, et cetera. Capital L liberal. Yeah. Capital L liberal, yeah. Um, who, um, who genuinely believes that uh, chemicals in the water turn frogs gay, and that has something that we can learn about gay, people, gay people in our society, and that this person was a leader of a, a major party. And to see him being really unable to sort of make... Get get on his feet as a as a leader of a party party due to this like unrelenting 
coordinated, coordinated meme attacks on him, yeah, regarding his obsession also with milk. And then later, <laughs> later the radio played Tim Peake's Farron Walk With Me, which yeah. I really... <laughs> um, and every time, every, like, I, I, this, yeah, so that sort of humour I find extreme. There's, there's a, there was a whole series of memes that they did, or someone did, I think, who's linked with them, which was photos of Tim Farron uh, at a bar. You know, you, it's a classic, like, photo op for a politician is uh, them at the bar po pulling a pint. And they just captioned them as if he was a barman giving his um, sort of unrequested opinion about chemi chemicals and gay frogs. <laughs> <laughs> and like, but I found it like, because at times I was getting really down about the just presence of this guy and, and, and to, to be able to go back to that and be like, yeah, he is just a, like a ranting homophobic barman is actually a really <laughs> useful thing. Very, very funny. Yeah. Um, always come back to Tim Farron with us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think the real uh, last maybe 10, 15 years um, uh, and development of like a much more discourse happening online has been extremely positive. Has been the rise of sort of intersectional critiques of gay uh, and lesbian or LGBT culture in general and organising and um, uh, the m sort of access and mainstreaming of voices that would have always been shut out and shut down, um, which is which has has been a, like a genuine challenge to existing organisations and discourses, which has been uh, super positive, especially around around uh, race. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, but in terms of generationally, um, I watched this film by Malcolm Ingrams called uh, Continental, which is about the Continental Baths, <coughs> uh, which was a, the first gay-owned um, sauna in New York. And he tries to make a documentary about, well, he starts to make a documentary about Bette, Bette Midler, who used to play there. And then Bette Midler's not willing to go along with the documentary, and so he finds the guy who is running it, who, had, who was running it, and finds out that he's now living in uh, Australia. Mm. Uh, it's a really fascinating documentary, but one of the things is that he, he now runs this um, organisation for uh, gay male pensioners, and uh, I'd never heard about it before, 
and, and in the film it says, oh, it's the second largest LGBT organization in the entire world. And it's like, how have you, I never heard about this at all. And I think like that's something that needs like, needs genuine offline on the ground organization, which is both to combat loneliness because a lot of the people who are now going into their sort of 60s and 70s were people who lost a lot of friends and their social groups were completely decimated during uh, this, the, the early days of the AIDS, AIDS crisis. And that it's something that can probably only be done uh, through on the ground activism. And, and loneliness can really, I mean, the internet it obviously helps, but I think loneliness can, uh, amongst those communities can only be combated through meeting people. And that the wealth of knowledge and uh, uh, wisdom and uh, yeah, oral history that can be shared is just, um, yes, yeah, is like a, uh, not just an untapped resource, but it's like a sort of human experience that is missing. And uh, I think probably the sort of collapse of gay spaces in terms of gay bars uh, is a real problem with that because there were always older guys in those spaces when I was young. So yeah, I think probably that's like a, could be a really good focus for ongoing organization um, last year I did a talk on uh, a t like a, a walking tour in London on um, on gay um, gay squats gay liberation from squats from the 1970s and into the 1980s and I met a guy who I, <coughs> I actually knew from Quaker meeting he was like he was in his I think he's in his late 60s now who uh, had lived in one I never knew this you know, I, th I thought he was like a nice guy from my meeting, and then I mentioned it to him. He's like, "Oh, yeah, I spent ten years living in a gay squat in the nineteen eighties in Stone Newington." I went around to his house, and um, yeah, we spent three hours just interviewing him, just talking about these things. And I was like, "This, this knowledge and this wealth of experience and of history that to him was, rem was kind of unremarkable, and yet, um, and he didn't necessarily see it as of interest to other people. It was actually something that definitely." So I recorded that, and I think that's something that ongoing organisations, this like share of like companionship and um, and wisdom and historical knowledge, is something that would be a really good ongoing you know, thing to be involved in. Yeah, I mean, for my part, a lot of my work has focused on like putting together a kind of a trans history, which you know kind of exists, but it's very disparate and not coordinated, and uh, you know you have to do quite a lot of kind of setting up that kind of crossover without necessarily kind of completely appropriating something from an entity that didn't exist in the time that we were talking about. You know, I've done a lot of work around like kind of like 19th century like cross-dressing in British cities and the, these are often interpreted through this kind of gay framework partly because these people were known to be like cross-dressers often arrested and put on trial and you know were strongly suspected of being like sodomized. So, like, in terms of kind of like community formation and passing on these histories through the communities, um, yeah, I mean, I think the internet is great for that in lots of ways, but I mean, I would reiterate Hugh's point about the real need for, um, you know, 
spaces and you know as we were saying during the recording like a lot of those have gone um, you know like London's kind of nightclub spaces in general have been you know like halved I think over the last kind of 20 years um, you know sort of gay and lesbian clubs in particular have really kind of borne the brunt of that I think um, I mean you know I'm quite encouraged by some of the things that like the Momentum group around Corbyn and the Labour Party are finally starting to do around you know kind of community outreach work and kind of looking beyond the cities into kind of like towns and suburbs um, and you know that might be a good kind of network for like queer groups to kind of look at and to maybe try and replicate or even get involved with um, you know historically we didn't really talk about it too much in the program but historically there's been a tension between more kind of the old left kind of trade union style socialist political work and you know this kind of new left of like anti-racist Um, and I don't think that tension really needs to be there. I think that bridge can and should be, and I think is being bridged. So I think, you know, a structure like like the ones that Momentum are kind of creating, like, I think there's space for us to have as well. Um, I don't know if there are any more questions. If there are, I think we've only got time for one more. Um, or we can, like, wrap up generally. Um, okay, well, I might, um, I think I might the show there. Um, thank you all for coming and uh, thank you Hugh for joining me today. That oh, was thanks sweet, for inviting me. Sweet 212 Extra Live. Thank you very much. <laughs>